1: Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast...
0: Helen meets with Laura Wade.
1: The playwright. We talk about Brexit. Yes, we always talk about Brexit. But we talk about something that isn't Brexit as well.
0: You ask us, why don't would-be splitters just join the Lib Dems?
1: Stephen, do you know what? I've been writing in the magazine this week about natalism, about Victor Orban's frankly terrifying plans to turn every woman in Hungary into a baby machine. So compared to that, give me the sweet, light relief of what's what's happening in Brexit.
0: So Jeremy Corbyn, since we last doth met, I was getting into character. Okay, is this your new character as the kind of
1: old person who faxes and therefore is quite old school?
0: Yeah. There ain't no school like the old school. So Jeremy Corbyn, since our last episode, wrote a letter to Theresa May in which he set out five demands for the Brexit process. Now, you may go, but wait, he already had six tests. What's the difference? Obviously, there are two important differences. The first is the difference between five and six. But the more (laughs) important difference... isn't the six tests can't be met, right? Yeah, I mean, real talk, right? It's the exact
1: are. same benefits as the single market, which is only available in the single yeah, they're, market. Yeah, they're,
0: they're designed to finesse uh, the fact that Labour's unity position on the Brexit deal was always going to be that it wasn't very good, and that was always going to be something which could basically command the support of everyone from Kate Hoey to Bridget Phillipson.
1: So the new the five deals, the kind of, so it's membership of a customs union, right, and dynamic alignment on workers' rights and regulations.
0: Oh uh, yeah, it's basically uh, we we would like to stay within the customs and regulatory orbit of the of the EU. Theresa May has sent a letter back, going, okay, I'm willing to do some stuff on workers' rights. However, it will be based on Parliament, not here. Also, I've got as far to a customs union as I'm willing to go. Now, essentially, in many ways, the two letters can be summarised to. Hey, look, here's a path to a Brexit deal. It involves you taking a lot of political damage, and in exchange, I can give you something which the. EU... Yeah, so. so... And,
1: and then a reply from Theresa May comes back Dear Jeremy, thank you for your later <laughs> date to the fourth. I note with interest your suggestion that I split my party, and I put it to you that perhaps you would like to split your party instead.
0: Yeah, essentially. So, yeah, I think. So, the, there are a couple of interesting things here. One is that. And you can fairly ask yourself what people who, who didn't think there had been an explicit signal from Jeremy Corbyn about where he wanted the Brexit process to end, i.e. with it happening. Uh, with Him
1: not having anything to do with it.
0: Yeah, whether or not you, f- you feel those people at this point were ever going to accept any kind of signal to that effect. But it's symboli- it's a symbolic kind of labour moving away from riding two horses towards really essentially riding one. It notionally retains the kind of... If all else fails, a public vote option, but it's
1: a plausible it's, as well, isn't it? Right, like, in the sense that it was welcomed by Nor Juncker, the other, and little Donald, Donald Tusk, T- and yeah. a couple of MEPs. So, you know, who, who the day after Theresa May had been to Brussels, were like, well, this sounds very, very plausible, actually. So, yeah, it's, uh,
0: it's a, it is a serious. So it does mean we now have kind of two or, or one and a half, depending on how you feel about the level of the changes between the two. Two serious Brexit proposals that could both
1: can i ask a question which is too well can i ask many questions but one of them is this so you've written in your column this week that actually jeremy corbyn's request can all be done on the basis of the withdrawal agreement as it's currently constituted and then it changes this second document the political declaration which has a, a lot more scope to be altered why doesn't that mean that therefore jeremy corbyn will vote for theresa may's withdrawal agreement next time it comes back to the house
0: well, so... Does he want
1: guarantees before he does it. He
0: wants guarantees before he, he does it. Also, so the, the kind of other, the other sort of policy ask is that as well as the fact that there is division among lawyers about the extent to which the political declaration does and doesn't matter, yeah. Whether or not if something is in the political declaration, it has any legal importance in terms of the next stage. But he also has asked for some form of primary legislation. So effectively, something in the withdrawal agreement bill, the bit of legislation which gives a legal effect to the withdrawal agreement, which would basically say something like, "And our our negotiating tactics will be those laid down in the political declaration." And now, he's not
1: going, but he's not going to get that. So. Yeah. So the
0: interesting statecraft question, yeah, is if Theresa May had from the off gone. Here's my withdrawal agreement. Here's my political declaration. We're going to vote on them separately. Yeah, awesome. Whether or not she would have been able to successfully finesse the argument. Because I think one of the things which is obvious, right, is it is not as politically painful to vote against the withdrawal agreement as it was politically painful to vote against triggering Article 50. I mean, demonstrably... There's, there's, well, there's a
1: solid thing happening, right? There was a kind of... Article 50 was, are you against the concept of Brexit versus this is, are you against this particular Brexit that definitely exists here? Yeah,
0: and so I think there, there is an open question, and I'm inclined to agree with... So some Conservative MPs think that Theresa May... Yeah, and these people you broadly describe as loyalists, I, they mostly did vote for the deal themselves, and the ones who didn't did so because their local parties were very angry, and they, they you know, the, the argument you'll hear from some Conservative MPs is, she completely messed the politics of this up, this ought to have been a, are you for, for or against Brexit, if you're for it, here's the withdrawal agreement. I've actually heard that from several Labour MPs in the People's Vote campaign, many of whom basically, there's a, sort of a coterie of people in the People's Vote campaign who basically think brexit's mistake i think that if it's reverse it's going to be reversed to a referendum didn't at the beginning expect and it would ever get to a point where it was the semi-serious thing but thought, well i'm not going to be on the record saying it's a bad idea and several of them said well they always assume that what she would do is she would sit there with the six tests and basically go well if i can arguably claim that my deal has met four of these that and i go look this is just about brexit this is just about the exit instead of talking about it because she still speaks of it almost as if she's negotiated a trade deal and not like she has negotiated the terms of exit so yeah I think it's an interesting question about whether or not she could have kept that coalition together I kind of think she probably could have considering how um, politically difficult it was for several MPs to vote even to extend the article 50 process there clearly is still a coalition that could have been scared up
1: okay take me through a couple of other things which is that the votes this week the so-called st valentine's day massacre now seem to be no interest whatsoever so we're not expecting anything when is the next piece of i'm going to say exciting with a kind of inbuilt eye roll when is the next like major set piece like we'll actually get to see some forward movement vote now happening
0: so allegedly the 27th of february now it's getting
1: a bit squeaky isn't it the old the old voting business there
0: yeah, yes it is. Um, yeah, it's... I mean, even
1: if they pass it on the 27th of February, is there time to pass all the other bits and pieces that they need by the 29th of March?
0: It's an open question. So this, that's one of the reasons why some people in the Shadow Cabinet were deeply against backing the Cooper Amendment. Angela Rayner and John Trickett were both of the opinion that the, that the Conservatives are going to have to extend anyway. Oh, Okay, so, so the Cooper amendment was like, the one
1: that said basically Parliament takes back over the process with a, with, with a debate if we haven't got an agreement by the end of February. Well,
0: so the Cooper amendment wasn't even Parliament takes back control of the process; yeah. it was just Parliament will pass measures to extend. Right. The Grieve amendment was more radical in that it, it gave Parliament a series of, of days. Okay, so the,
1: so Trickett and Rayner's calculation was: Well, the Conservatives are going to do it; have to do it anyway. So why should we take the political pain for them? Going, oh look, Labour as ever is trying to block Brexit. And lots of people thought,
0: so you need 25 days for an election. Oh, I knew you were
1: going to say the E word. Okay.
0: So the fear some people had with the extension is, what do you do if an extension gets voted through? She goes up in front of Downing Street and goes, people are blocking Brexit. We need an election on whether or not Brexit should be blocked. Which is
1: kind of what she tried to make the last election about. And for all that, I think it was wrong for Labour to whip to block article 50 it didn't effectively remove that weapon from Theresa may's arsenal in the 2017 election yeah i have another question which is that i read a thing this morning that said there are ships that have now left britain bound for like the far east Mm -hmm. that don't know what their legal status will be when they arrive i have i have actually stockpiled i have stockpiled some water should i be stockpiling more things i mean why would you put the percentage chance of no deal now
0: I'm actually increasingly dubious about percentage chances because I don't actually think that we, uh, we're we really bad at understanding them, right?
1: Uh-huh.
0: So we're also particularly bad in understanding something when something has a less a... Than 50% chance. If I give
1: you £10, I'm not yeah. going to give you £10, and you have to either put it on May's deal passing or no deal. You can't have extending article 50 because I think, as Alex Helen pointed out this morning on Twitter, that's not an outcome, that's just a, more of a delay to an outcome, which, which you put your tenor on.
0: I would still put my tenor on something like May's deal, so the open question, right, is there is maybe a, a sort of what I'm going to describe as an unforced majority for May's deal, I, a majority in which the Labour leadership says we'll back it or we'll abstain, and then you have some Labour MPs who are able to back it, some Labour MPs who are able to oppose it, but it, it gets through on that. But that would be quite narrow. There is a larger latent majority for Norway Plus or Corbyn's deal or whatever you, whatever whatever label makes makes you happy. But.
1: but you're sad about that. Okay, I have another question. Sorry, this is the result of me having some had some blissful time at Paris at the weekend and therefore not really paying attention. Although I did get to see some authentic Gilets jaunes like letting off smoke bombs and wearing their little vests. Which is about the concept of actually when you keep talking about party splits and when we talked last week about the Labour and the six that might go and whether or not they you know they, they wanted to you know, what terms they want to leave on what they want to be their, their rationale for leaving. Everyone kind of says, oh, Theresa May, you're going to have to split her party. I put it to you that the ERG are sort of panty-wasting losers who wouldn't actually leave the party because they love being in the Conservative Party too much. Are they actually, like, I know they would cause an enormous lot of flaff and maybe they'd manage to, you know... What actually would they do? Would they leave? Would they really, really, would they leave? Would they? I think the
0: problem for the Conservative Party is not a formal split on that end, right? Because so the reason why a Labour split is a live possibility is essentially because Jeremy Corbyn has won that party's internal civil war. Uh, He's
1: not going away, and it's and, his way or the highway. And
0: so it's basically a question of whether or not one wishes to remain in that party. Yep. Whereas from a Conservative perspective, the outcome of their internal uh, war is, is not well. Particularly from an, e, from an ERG perspective, although it is not accurate to say that yeah, there are still people who are properly pro-European who were selected for the first time in 2017... The churn in the Conservative Party is towards it becoming more, not less, Brexity. So the concern May has is not so much that a bunch of people leave, but then you, they enter a prolonged period of internal division, which means that they are become too incoherent to win an election.
1: Right, I guess, and then all selection battles become divided over that kind of line. You get more people like Nick Bowles is already facing no-confidence motions in his local party. So I guess that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. Because I say, if they were, you know, given that only two MPs in the end left for UKIP, back in UKIP's pomp, and given the prize of the next Tory leadership brace and therefore possible prime ministership, which is only available to you, as, you know, you only get influence that if you stay in the Conservative Party, I just that's why i think it's sort of interesting when people say oh the erg might split you think mm-hmm. but it's not this it's not formal leaving it's just that they basically break the project so much that it's just yeah non they, yeah. Un, you know an ungovernable party
0: yeah that is kind of the the bigger fear and i think if there was a split on the conservative side it would be from that kind of group of remainers the who, sort of
1: subri kind of axis
0: yeah and yeah kind of people who are who feel pushed out. Because I mean the thing is right, isn't it, in an odd way like a party split is a bit like an election boycott. You don't do it if you think you can win.
1: Is there any point of kind of abstaining from the election if you there's no chance? I think it's also interesting that you're right, there could be a split in the sense of I have heard several people say if Boris Johnson became the next leader then they just couldn't remain an MP. Now whether or not that is in the case of someone like Ken Clark has always sort of hinted in this kind of direction, whether or not actually he just wouldn't stand again, which yeah. given that he's in his autumn years is not you know, but there are people I think who genuinely would or you know, Jacob Rees mogg being another obvious example, people would just be like, Well, this isn't the party for me anymore.
0: Like the interesting question about the Conservative Party, right, is is that if you if you kind of if you started phoning from A to Z or indeed any randomly chosen way of calling Conservative MPs, you would very rapidly hit seven MPs who'd go, Well, I, I won't allow no deal if no deal becomes our policy, then I will do X. I am genuinely at this point mystified as to short of her getting out like a I love no deal T-shirt, putting it on <laughs> in the House of Commons and going... This is
1: what a no deal lover yeah, looks like. when
0: I say deal, you say no. Like, I cannot work out how British government policy could at this point materially change, seeing as she's going around Europe asking for a thing she's never going to get. It's visibly is her intent to use the, the threat of the cliff. But there are still people,
1: people who are, uh, think that Jeremy Corbyn can be won round to the concept of a people's vote when he's could not be more dragging, like his nails dragging into the dirt. Like, if he came round to it, it would only be as a result of it so much being the popular option there's no way he's leading that charge ever he's not spending one ounce of political capital on that
0: yeah the thing is though is there anyone in the shadow cabinet whose owners actually are still people in the shadow cabinet who think that they might get a people's vote
1: it's nice to have dreams it's probably on that lovely optimistic note that there are some people who still walk among us that think that let's say good night And now I'm joined by Laura Wade, the author of Home, I'm Darling, which is on at the Duke of York's Theatre until the 13th of April. Hello, Laura. Hello. I'm going to start off by this by saying I don't think it's possible to talk about this play in a spoiler-free way. So I'm going to put an, a warning yeah. right at the top. I think that that's sensible. People that should go and see this first. I saw it when it was on at the National Theatre. It's now in the West End. It was also at Theatre Clwyd in Wales. It was. How yes. do we pronounce that? I, I, Cluid. I, Theatre okay, Cluid. That's good. I live in fear of Welsh people coming and telling me my pronunciation <laughs> is wrong. But it's... It starts off with what looks like a 50s marriage. A very traditional, the egg is having its top taken off, the wife in a big flancy skirt. And then there's a sudden realisation that, oh, this isn't happening in the 50s. These are people role-playing living in the 50s. And it's now, yeah. So tell me, what was the thing that first brought you to wanting to write about this?
2: It was the idea of vintage people you see them around the place in their sort of fabulous outfits and hats and women with beautiful sort of pin curled hair and the idea that some of those people feel such an affinity with that period that they would like to live in it and the idea that you could feel nostalgia for a time that you weren't actually alive for I thought was really fascinating the idea that the modern world is in some way bewildering or atomizing or all of the things that we think of as helpful and useful in technology and whatever else we have now that that someone would would rather live in a different time almost like a a person who is transgender feels like they're born in the wrong body that there could be a character who felt like they were born in the wrong decade sort of thing so it was it was that really I'm wanting to test out this idea of fetishised domesticity as well, that this idea that with modern feminism, women can choose whatever they want to do and that a a woman who calls herself a feminist might choose to be a housewife. And what would that mean for a modern marriage and being for her not just a housewife, but a 1950s housewife, and that they live in this full 1950s house? He goes off to work at a, a modern workplace... She stays at home and, and cleans the house with um, 1950s-style products. And, um, you know, what does that do? Can that work in the modern world? So it just felt like there was a huge amount of stuff that was available to be explored in this.
1: I think one of the things I find most interesting is this idea of the sort of flip side of social liberalism actually being quite judgmental in its own way. Mm-hmm. So... yeah. There's a kind of idea about about sex, for example, that, you know, actually people should be afraid to have sex with however they want. However many people they want, you shouldn't, you know, can, shouldn't slut shame people. Mm. But then I think most people who subscribe to all that would nonetheless have a sort of slight quizzical expression about someone who said they wanted to save themselves from marriage. Because be like, well, I don't think that's, you know, that's not really the best way to do it. And I think there's a similar thing with feminism saying, you know, women should be able to go out to work. becomes translates into... Why would anyone woman want to be a sort of surrendered Mm. wife? Why would anyone choose to do that? Mm. And Mm. actually, it's not really about choice at all. It's about one set of values over another.
2: Yeah, and what Judy argues in the play is that that's a very capitalist argument. In fact, that we all need to be working. And that's the only way for a woman to be fulfilled. And she argues, and i I should say that I don't agree personally and find my job extremely fulfilling, but she would argue that she and her husband are simply sharing out the work of their marriage in a different way, and that for them it's it works. And for them it's it's their happiest way to be. and and also, I think it's, for them it's the sexiest way to be as well that those those clear defined gender roles just work for them That they they both know what they're supposed to be doing and that allows them to not have all of those arguments about who's doing what around the house and leaves them free to to be themselves and and, and be their relationship obviously because it's a play things go wrong <laughs> because you don't go and watch a play about people just having a nice people, time people just having a lovely time
1: but there's one of the things again I find really interesting about it is that Johnny the husband actually by the end it's him that's saying let's ease up on this, this, yeah. this you don't need to kind of you know maybe just wear a slightly bigger skirt not yes. you know everything be because it's become a kind of Perfectionism, and yeah. I think that was another thing that maybe feminism isn't so great at exploring is the way that women have internalized messages. I was thinking, I know you're probably too highbrow to watch a lot of Wife Swap, but in Wife Swap, I love okay, Wife Swap. Good. So, in Wife Swap, there was always a really interesting thing where the most amount of judgment came from the woman in each couple mm. about how the other woman raised her children. Yes, yes. And I think that you can say it's false consciousness, or you can say that it's about women being taught to be in competition with each other, but. It strikes me that one of the interesting things about the play is it's not Johnny subjugating Judy and saying, no. you know, I would stay at home and kind of forcing her there. Actually, he, if anything, finds it quite awkward and uncomfortable trying to explain this to people. Yes. And it's her that really yes. has her vision of domesticity so set in her yes.
2: mind. I mean, there's a whole sisterhood question there, isn't there? But But yes, also that she is an extremely intelligent and educated person who has come from a high-powered job in finance and she applies all of that brain to the work that she does inside the house. So everything does get really detailed and important and micromanaged. In the same way, I suppose, that some some women leave high-powered professional jobs when they have children and they apply all of that intelligence to... Rigid
1: scheduling. You know, Child rearing. I'm going to be the best and, mother ever. Everything's yeah, going to run like clockwork in this house. It's
2: all completely exhausting. And I think something that the play argues for in its later stages, and, I get, and spoiler alert, but is allowing a bit more... Muddle into our lives because it isn't possible to be
1: perfect. It isn't possible to find the perfect balance. But also, you talked there about nostalgia at the start, which I think mm. is really interesting because I remember I interviewed Antonia Fraser, the historian, and mm-hmm. I said, well, "You know, if you couldn't live now, what would you live in any other time?" And she said, basically, "Oh my God, you know, as a, I would not live any time before, you know, like pain relief and childbirth or you yes. know, like any of those when maternal mortality rates are so high, that what people fetishize about the past, you know, it's not a total." of the past right
2: no no and that that comes across again quite strongly in the play that judy's mother is just old enough to remember being a child in the 50s and her idea of the 50s is completely different to the what she calls the cartoon version that judy has set up in her house i mean in the same way i suppose that you know you, you see beautiful interiors in a magazine dated 2018 but most people's houses don't look like that they're a mess, they're a muddle and the point that Sylvia makes in in the play about the 50s is the 50s were actually a very grey difficult time to be alive in Britain and Judy's version is kind of mixed up with quite a lot of America quite a lot of Hollywood film and there's quite a lot of Doris Day and Rock Hudson in the mix and lots of things that are not about real life in Britain in the 1950s which according to you know a lot of reports was pretty dire
1: Right. I mean, I think about reading David Hare's memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, talks about growing up in Bexhill and Sea, he was born in 1947, about, mm. he talks about this sort of stifling conformity and that yes. a woman who lived in the next house or a couple of houses down just one day just walked into the sea, you know, that there were people mm. who were so unhappy, they felt so confined Terrific. and stifled in their lives. And things about, you know, for, for gay people and for women particularly, and for ethnic minorities, that, you know, that there was just, the template was so rigid but I think that's what's fascinating not to mention the B word which I would like to ban from this podcast but is unfortunately not possible but it just strikes me that one of the kind of massive themes of, of Brexit is a nostalgia for a sort of Second World War that didn't happen from yes. from people who didn't fight in the Second World War and don't really yes. remember the Second Maybe their parents did and they feel a certain kind of... But like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we all just, you know, dig for victory? And yeah. you sort of think, I don't know if everyone was actually. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of kind of you're, you're taking the sort of propaganda version of the Second World War yes. where everyone's a sort of chirpy milkman delivering stuff during the Blitz and forgetting that there was racketeering and extortion. and
2: the Actual bombs. And, and yes, and
1: not to mention the small man. <laughs> of an actual, really unpleasant (laughs) war that was fighting against an enemy that at times threatened to overwhelm Europe in a kind of genocidal mania.
2: Yes, it's an an extraordinary thing, that nostalgia. I don't get it at all. A lot of people have said that they think the play has quite a lot of Brexit resonances, which, which weren't intended, and started writing it. Before Brexit was anyone's dream slash nightmare. But it's interesting how that's so much in the air at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably the other way around, isn't it? That it's, that strain is, is runs very deep in either British or maybe even say English consciousness or public discourse. And Brexit is one manifestation mm. of it, but there are, mm. it kind of pops up in other yeah, places Yeah, I too. think
2: I really started to notice the domesticity thing around the time of the financial crash, actually. There was a, there was a period where everybody got really into frugality and crafting and the home became kind of a focus and it was almost as if it was a slight sort of smoke and mirror thing to make us all forget that we used to be able to afford to go out sort of thing and the, that sort of that sort of hominess became really important and I thought I thought that was really culturally really interesting
1: well thank you very much for joining us the play thank is you. home I'm darling which is on at the Duke of York's theatre until the 13th of April Laura Wade thank you
0: It's time for a section we like to call
1: you ask us ow i hurt my throat doing that
0: this question is from mike brown why aren't the labor splitters talking about defecting to the green slash lib dems it seems like a better solution for them than starting a new party and splitting the center left vote further
1: Well, Mike, you sweet summer child, a couple of different reasons spring to mind. One is that that would sort of involve them, like, if you're going to kind of go, I will not kneel before the king, then you kind of can't really go, but I will kneel before Baron Vince Cable, the great political leader that he is, right? I think quite a lot of them, there's a sort of bruised egoness that wouldn't necessarily want to subsume itself in, as they see it, kowtowing to the leader of a much smaller party.
0: Well, so the argument lots of people have, and I think actually this is, this is true, and I'm going to use a, a very tedious local example because the thing that podcast feedback always says is, and they love it when I talk about Hackney. So, in, in my local area, for a long time, yeah, you're kind of various neighborhood groups have very strongly resisted the presence of Sainsbury's on Church Street because it's a chain store, it's a big corporation, and it would drive lots of the little stores out of business.
1: Do you know what? In Lewisham, we'd kill for a Sainsbury's. We lost our Tesco Metro due to overly high levels of shoplifting. <laughs>
0: Heroes, <laughs> but um, but
1: that's how you drive chains out, Stephen. None of this artisan bakery business. Just steal everything that's in there.
0: But the same good burgers of N16 have accepted the <laughs> present. I thought there was a
1: burger chain. Sorry, it's like <laughs> Honest Burgers. But uh, yeah, carry on.
0: Uh, have accepted the presence of Whole Foods. Similarly, you know, a, a terrible chain. corporate chain that has made life more difficult for you know the, the nice little grocers and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, uh, why is that? It's because Whole Foods has quinoa. Its, well, also a different. Well, so would a Sainsbury's. In I mean, they 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 do <laughs> they tailor
1: their range. They tailor their range
0: true. to the local community. But Whole Foods has a very different brand. People do not associate with Walmart or now Amazon. They associate it with you know Whole foods not just half foods wholesome foods um (laughs) yeah so this is partly why when people say yeah and you see this a lot when people kind of yeah when like people who want the conservative party to be more right-wing go oh they should be scared of a new brexit party well actually seeing as we know that the new brexit party will will at least rhetorically occupy that you know left-wing economic social authoritarian space there are lots of labor voters who are attracted to that ditto the space than any kind of new anti-Brexit, that Lib Demi space, you will, as crazy as it is that there are people who didn't want a Sainsbury's because they thought that correctly that it would drive the little grocers out of business, who have welcomed a Whole Foods that is driving the little grocers out of business, there similarly are voters who will not vote for the Lib Dems, who will vote for, like, the liberal Leber- Lemocrats. In my mind, this is crazy, but I've just decided to accept that it's true. There is, of course, also the fact that people don't want to defect... On sort of kind of what can really only be described as like
1: sulky grands,
0: sulky. Well, no one wants to defend. Yeah, you know, it's like better to be a, to reign in hell than be a thingy Bobby in heaven, or whatever Milton says in Paradise Lost.
1: That's a great description of Chris Leslie.
0: But yeah, you know, kind of. So one of the sort of fascinating things about like the split chat now, in comparison to the SDP. So the SDP did a couple of things. One, they lined up a bunch of funders, and there are some much more serious conversations about funding uh, this time as well. And they also did um, successfully almost take the electricians' union with them, which is ironic considering that the electricians' union has now been merged into bomb bom, bomb bom, unite. One of those nice. I've got. Little fin- bits didn't of... they
1: have? I had weird conversations about the SDP over the weekend, and someone told me that they had a travelling party conference. Like, literally was on the road. On the train, yeah. Amazing scenes. And also, they wouldn't let people join up by cheque. Am I right? You had to join up by bank transfer at a time when lots of people didn't. Because they were like a forward party of the future. Yeah. And, and therefore, you couldn't just pay in money.
0: But basically, there was... But like, they were
1: big... I mean, they were cabinet ministers, right? They were big, serious... They were big beasts.
0: And But crucially, when they then neg- went into negotiations with the Liberal Democrats about, you know, how they would work together, they did so from a position of strength. And so that's part of why. Because there is despite the weirdness then it it would somehow manage to get and you see this whenever they do like a kind of like Imagine there's a new party and a bunch of people who are ostentatiously not voting for the Lib Dems will then turn to you yeah, will say to one boss like well, now I'm not going to vote for the Lib Dems. And you're like, imagine this Liberal Democrats party, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, I'll definitely vote for them. Please subscribe me to their mail list. But that um, totally
1: makes sense to me. It's not, not just, and it's so kind of glib to say protest votes, but that you have a space, but you don't want to vote for anyone who's disappointed you in the past. You know, I voted Liberal Democrat before, but the Liberal Democrats have disappointed me in the past.
0: Yeah, and I I'll just be
1: choose- disappointed by a new set of people. Yeah, but I mean, I
0: think that this is... So this is—I mean—there are many, many reasons why I think a lot of the discourse about who, who a new party would hurt is bold. But the, the interesting is right—the historical trend throughout the whole life of both the Liberal Party as uh, when it as as the third party par- after the Second World War, and uh, the history of the Liberal Democrats and the SDP does actually show that they had and they had net no effect in 1983 or 87 because of their the split of the second preferences of their votes wouldn't have changed the result and since they've merged yeah, but they've people, obviously hurt the Tories a lot more because people just say that about are.
1: 1983 don't they because they they want they want to try and cover up the fact that Michael Foote's manifesto was not very popular so rather than admitting actually this manifesto was could only had a had a ceiling on it it's much more comfortable to say it would have stormed a victory had it not been for well, I, also think this.
0: I think people do genuinely believe it right And it, and in many ways yeah as we've Discussed before, there's a generation of people near the top of the Labour Party for whom their beliefs about the SDP are a bit like some Blairites' beliefs about 1992. And in both cases, when you look at the several logical argument, you you kind of sort of have to kind of sort of the suck right your teeth and go 90, actually what, 1992 bit more was than that 1992 was that
1: what that that's Labour should have won that, but only but, the Tories getting a new leader was the only thing that saved them.
0: No, so failure to keep changing and reforming after 87, not trusted on tax and spend. Uh-huh saying going into an election saying they would write increase income tax etc etc yeah like a whole sort of you know a whole chunk of beliefs about how you won an election which which you know still had a very strong influence even even down to uh 2015. Now you can you can quibble all of those things just like you can very fairly go no 1983 that is not what happened but I don't think it's so much about something that is special pleading but about something people genuinely believe and once someone genuinely believes something it's often quite hard to get them to let Go of it, but so that's one of the main reasons why people don't just join another party. They they think rightly that they would be significantly less likely to survive and retain their seats without the kind of patina of oh we're new. Although of course actually, like the most significant thing with any split is not you know the newness of the party, although that helps, but crucially whether or not they can between defections from Labour, defections from the Conservative Party, and the combined twelve Liberal Democrats get to 36
1: so more than the more smp, than the SMP so they then become be the third party and they get short money and they would have some, slightly
0: more space on the bbc and, and it just it becomes a, a multiplier i to be honest think it is highly unlikely um
1: and as you said before six. that they won't have european elections in the way that ukip did as a sort of funding and and well, you know is, think, status and all that really kind of
0: stuff. really fun hypotheticals. I'm sorry this is a very Stephen use of the phrase really fun. but obviously up until 1999 our european elections were done on the first past the post.
1: Yes. And then we moved to de Haunt.
0: Yeah. And then blair introduced a, a proportion system like the rest of europe had although slightly different from what one He's, as part of him being a good European, which did, of course, help UKIP uh, mm-hmm. survive and grow. If we had had a proportional system in the 1980s, would the SDP have died off? I think probably not, because they would have got something for their votes. One of the things which ultimately killed them is basically the money ran out because people don't keep giving money to a party with no result, with no... um, Say
1: what you like about Nigel Farage, but the man certainly knew how to fill in an expenses form.
0: Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, so the odd thing is, is it may well be that, yeah, kind of... there's, There's lots of, I think, very bad history about, like, going, oh, you know, if it wasn't for Blair, we wouldn't have had a devolved parliament in Scotland, and that's why the SNP are so successful now, and it's just like, I mean, seeing as that had been a Labour manifesto commitment since 1974... I feel that's one of the things you can't really claim Blair would have done. And also the idea, if you look at Scottish public opinion, that you could have turned around and gone, at a point when the SNP already had seats in Westminster, gone, nope, no Parliament for you, and there would be no consequences, is crazy. Yeah,
1: pipe down, Jock. I I imagine that would have gone really, really well. But the Um, thing you
0: can blame Blair for is UKIP in the European Parliament.
1: Wow. On that bombshell. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilden. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We have some New Statesman events coming up. The one on Brexit and Lexit is sold out, but there is one about me too in the age of Trump, which I'm involved with, with Nas Shah and Aisha Hazarika. Just look up the New Statesman website. We have an events page and you can find out all about it there.